0: Um, Welcome to the people that are here. Um, I see many people I know and have chatted with before. Tonight's really meant to be an overview of what I've sort of been working on for the last 48 hours. And just talking about some of the issues that have been coming up with uh, the BC hospitals and urgent care um, and sort of the services there in British Columbia So to start, I'll actually just say a little bit about myself and Mel. Uh, So (laughs) we've been working um, from Project Canary Org, which is our actual official registered charity, which we established last year um, to sort of work on this stuff. Uh, Not that we have done much with the actual charity side of it yet, but um, lets us sort of have a little professional flair to it when we need to and we're talking to people. Um, So we've been working on various projects across the time, including school data and long-term care data and death data and all sorts of data um, is what I'm interested in. But to make the long story short, you're here tonight because we have uh, various issues that have been ongoing in the BC hospital system and urgent care system. So we see that closures have been happening in various parts of the provinces. Um, So for example, recently um, over the weekend, we saw closures in uh, Clearwater again, we saw closures in Port McNeil, and we saw um, some closures also in 100 Mile House. So those are closures of the actual emergency departments and they're generally rerouting to other cities for them to actually uh, go use the emergency departments in those areas. So the reason I have built uh, the sort of app that I have, which is going to be tracking these sorts of care disruptions, um, is that as we well know, BC Public Health is nowhere to be found at the moment, um, and they they don't have any sort of central tracking for the care systems within British Columbia, despite the clear need for it and even more of a need for it now that we're seeing these sorts of staffing challenges. So I have linked to an actual website now, um, which is ideal so that we don't have to use that nasty uh, NAC web link. So um, now it's hosted and it'll redirect from the website bchospitaldata.com. So bchospitaldata.com now will reroute to that website that holds that data. So we can easily use that link um, and share that with people. And it's easy to remember so that Um, Once we get used to it, people won't have to write it down and it will be easy to remember. Um, So if you follow that link from bchospitaldata.com, it'll bring you to the NAC website, um, which I've just named BC, BC Healthcare Systems. And there are three different pages that I'm currently working on. The first page is the BC Hospitals and Urgent Care Disruptions. So I have gone through um, all of the health authority websites and pulled all of the hospitals and, and uh, healthcare centers that offer urgent care. So these will um, either all fall under the name of hospital or um, urgent care center or a also under healthcare center, depending on how small the town is. Some of the healthcare centers, even though they're named that, actually offer the emergent services through those departments. So any of the um, buildings essentially that are offering emergent services I've added into this database. So this database is a, uh- It's allowed to be exported. So if you go to that website or redirect to it, um, that database of hospitals and care centers can be exported if you want to be utilizing that information or tracking it or sort of taking that hospital database and using it for other purposes as well. So that will remain open throughout uh, my time of using this. So uh, I just started this in the last 48 hours, so you're going to see sort of changes coming across it, but currently I have the primary information in there that I was hoping to, um, which is at the top of the primary page, you see that database of hospitals, Um, so it's currently got the actual hospital health center names, their cities, their health uh, health authority that they're in, the actual address so we can map to these places, um, typical hours of operation. And then now what we're gonna be tracking and I'm hoping for people to get information to me on is those service closures. So we are seeing some closures and reduction rates in the emergency departments and emergent services across the province. Um, They are providing various reasons for this, whether it's outbreaks, whether it is um, staff illness, Um, but a lot of it actually is now coming down to staffing numbers. They've had enough people um, off sick and quitting now that they're not able to sustain the regular loads that they were in the past. Um, So on this, I'll also be providing links to the news articles that are talking about these to just sort of keep the documentation as we go. So that's the actual database of the hospitals and it's searchable by all the variables that are included in the database itself. Um, So a big part for anybody here in the next sort of coming weeks. A really helpful thing for me would be if you see any news articles on those closures if you have new information on closures if you could submit that through the um, updates for the database which is underneath the database itself that would be super helpful i am going to be sort of going through the news articles each night but if i had people helping me along the way to help silo me that info um, it will save me a lot of time which would be uh, very gratefully appreciated Um, So I've put all this information together, and this essentially was straight work for the last two days, just getting it all um, in there. And now hopefully we'll be able to maintain it as the information comes in. Um, So lastly, there's a map there now that I've added in in the last hour. Um, So I upgraded the account so we can have map systems now. So all of the hospitals and care centers are routed into that map system. And individuals can search by their specific addresses or postal codes for those urgent care centers or hospitals around them. Um, to see how it's impacted in those systems. So, Mel, that's what I did in the last 24 hours. You're amazing. You're amazing.
1: Thank you so much. Like, this is so crucial for everybody's, like, existence right now because no one knows, you know, how long they're getting up waiting some people are purposely avoiding going to the hospitals because they there's no information and then there's people who can't get to a hospital if they need they're in an emergency like this is beyond teetering like i don't know what they're saying it's teetering but like 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 why why is it up to you to have to do this right yeah
0: so (laughs) this yes this should have already been there i agree um, it's bonkers I'm doing this I agree I would really like to get the same paycheck as public health I agree but I don't <laughs> and we need this information so here I am well, um, thank you. So like wow it's it's bonkers um, but aside from sort of the the ridiculousness of having to do that um, are there any thoughts on on Information also that might be helpful that you're left thinking of um, on other things you've heard about hospitals. So despite what I have in the tracker right now, I've put the closures in that have happened over the weekend. Um, I also know that there's sort of stuff going on at Royal Inland as well as um, in the north, but I, I don't quite have all the sources I need right now to sort of update those those things. Um, mm-hmm. I have had several healthcare workers from various hospitals reach out to sort of be reps for those areas. So I am keeping a uh, sort of a private contact list just for myself. of those That's amazing. As I told them, I would keep that um, confidential. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm sort of building a network there and there's interest in other provinces getting this started, but I can't manage that at the moment. So um, I'm really focusing on BC. Um, But I would be interested if anybody who's listening has any thoughts on on the data, on other things. Um, I'm also including, and you can ask, I think you can just request to speak. Um, we're, we're open in here. So uh, feel free to request to speak. If you have questions about the data or thoughts or comments, please. I would. I, it's like a brainstorm in here, which helps me. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that bchospitaldata.com, uh, the second page that I have on there now is weekly BC COVID data. Uh, Because, again, we've lost any sort of tracking in British Columbia of the uh, COVID pandemic. So I have gone and um, input all the data back to the beginning of April that they've provided on hospitalizations and mortality with that all-cause mortality. Um, It's not a lot of information. It sort of shows the general trend. And because of our testing limitations, it's super conservative. But it is the only data we have, so it's mapped on there now, so you can sort of see the general trends that are happening, which do show you that, you know, some of the worst numbers were in May itself, not not any other time. Yeah, Um, I'm I'm looking at the mortality,
1: holy moly!
0: Yeah, so, like, from, you know beginning to the mid of May, we've had some of the highest rates of all cause mortality in those one week periods, um, which is fascinating. And same with the sort of past week hospitalizations. So um, even though the data is limited, and it's very conservative, because of the testing constrictions, um, it does show us sort of those trends, which is something (laughs) and we have some sort of data somewhere. Um, And then lastly, the third page I'm working on right now, um, getting some input from from uh, Karen Ward is about the uh, illicit drug poisonings and deaths. And I'm trying to get some information and what data I can. Um, Again, it's hard to get that data. Uh, I've inputted the illicit drug deaths by year for now, covering for the last 10 years. So you can just see the extent of how bad this has escalated, particularly in 2021. Mm -hmm. Um. But for now, th- these are just sort of the, the, the bare bones of the data I want to get going. And then hopefully we'll be able to flesh this out as we get more people connected and more information coming in. So I would love to hear something. That's thoughts. amazing. <laughs> Mel? Uh, this is amazing. The fact
1: that you can visually see now, like I'm just looking at the illicit drug death page.
0: Mm-hmm. It's yeah, staggering. If you want to chat numbers.
1: Yeah, it's staggering. Can we chat those numbers? Like, I I knew BC was the worst in, like, excess deaths in all of Canada. But when you see the illicit drug deaths visualized like this, and when you see the amount of deaths we had in in May itself, it's just, like, Mm -hmm. they don't even talk about that. Or, you know, the fact that we just had another kid die. Like, there's been three kids dead now in the last two and a half weeks. None of this is discussed at all or in mainstream media. It's, it's completely swept under the rug.
0: And the difficult part for me is like, I'm, I, uh, well, and always for BC has been is that you can't even like tell when these things were and when the cases were. So it's hard to sort of figure out uh, what waves these deaths were part of and like who's being impacted and, and all that sort of stuff. We, we're, we're completely blind, <laughs> right?
1: yeah completely like if there's interest in other provinces and coordinating like with volunteers like to to do like one big mapping it would be so useful <sighs> health canada can't even get proper covid data i mean you see the blackout da- <laughs> the data blackouts from all the provinces in canada they're it's it's ridiculous
0: yeah, well, and we see the record of BC that they continue to give like partial data to to the Public Health Agency of Canada or refuse to give it all together. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, you look at things like the there was that recent article that came out in the Canadian Medical Journal, um, about the excess deaths in Canada and BC having the you know worst rates right like they have some they have the highest rates of excess deaths across the country in this in this time period of the pandemic and nothing crickets
1: but she won a bike she won two (laughs) e-bikes i mean (laughs) everyone's focused on that though right the fact that she's wearing a helmet indoors maskless but there's hand sanitizer behind her and she magically won the two e-bikes for victoria hospital well, <laughs> it's like a manufactured outrage, honestly. Like, yes, that's
0: like I think pretty tone deaf on her part. We're at a place, Mel, where, and I think it's good for us to talk about this, actually, because I think a lot of people feel it, is that um, we're at a place where we have been trying for so long to <laughs> come to answers about this and, like, give information and, you know, we're convinced if we have the right study or can, like, just you know, get the right information to these people that it will change them. Um, and people are getting, people are tired. Right. Yeah. And now people are not only tired, but they're watching large portions of the population go on with life, which despite the outcomes is still hard to watch when you've been in your house for two and a half years. Right. Um, so it's easy when you're tired and you're unresourced to get mad. Right. To Mm -hmm. sort of fall into that anger funnel because it's it's easy to do that instead of do really hard work like this. Right. Yeah. Like I I, too, would really much enjoy sometimes going to pick a few fights and sort of get mad at people. Definitely feel that inclination. I'm a human. Um, But when I have those thoughts, it's like, well, what can I actually do to help? Right. Like, what can I actually do in this situation to, for me, feel some sort of control, which is usually what I need in that moment. Mm -hmm. And this weekend that was building this database. Right. Like, yeah,
1: I can understand why Um, it's much needed. I mean, um, just to be able to visualize things because they they purposely make the data so hard to find and to see (laughs)
0: Just making this database this weekend, honestly, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how they have set up the health authority websites. Like, none of the information is one place in terms of address and, like, hours of operation. Some of the hospitals, I had a hard time even finding their address, right? Hours of operation are are different all across the board, even for emergency departments. And just parking prices before the hours of operation, like... (laughs) Welcome to B.C. Parking.
1: Let's just talk about parking for a second. B.C. Children's Hospital has had wait times of like 11 hours. And parents are still expected to pay for parking that entire time. That's insane.
0: Yeah, I don't actually... It's not even insane. It's it's inherently... Um, biased against people who don't have those means it's inherently classist right because the person think about the mom who's like working three jobs um or the the single parent that's working three jobs that needs to take their child there and all of a sudden has to pay for parking for 12 hours in the er and then miss half half a day of work etc all those sorts of things build up right which might stop them from going in which is horrifying the amount of barriers right they keep they keep piling it on
1: to just make it difficult i think that's why people are so angry is because it was never so visible before as it is now
0: <laughs> well yeah because if you're living <laughs> in a rural city and they tell you you have to drive 45 minutes in and you don't have a car how the fuck are you supposed to get to the emergency department right Genuinely, as individuals now, you know, if some of these kids in these rural facilities, you know, I'm going through the the health facilities, um, and you look at the hours of operation in the northern health areas, and it's a joke, right? And this is this is without the hours being impacted. Is that they're having like three hour emergency department hours? Right. From like 8 to 11 a.m. There's the department. And that's before we're seeing these service disruptions. It was already bad before, which we all know. But the approach that they took in this has completely collapsed it. And this is not even talking about the impact on EMS and all the other systems that are also dealing with the staffing and resource issues that everywhere else is as well.
1: I was reading a post about an urgent care center that's supposed to have like 30 doctors on staff and they only have like one like one person in urgent care for the urgent care centers.
0: Yeah <laughs> well and we see that you know there are emergency departments and ICUs where you know you should be having one nurse to like three patients and they're like one to ten right? In Alberta, we've got them like sharing anesthesiologists. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, You know, instead of dealing with it, or saying anything about it, the answer was, well, we're just gonna, we're gonna have them go between rooms now. (laughs) Right? And the emergency room just have really impacted these areas specifically. So you know, this has come up in the last few days, but communities in the Northern Health District have been hit really, really hard. You know, Fort St. John Hospital had its ICU closed from June 2020 to January 2022. Chatwin General Hospital had its emergency ER closed overnight over two dozen times from January 2021 to May 2022. That's not going to get better. No,
1: and then we wonder why we have such high excess deaths, right? I mean, the the new paper that... That you just spoke of is damning. Like we're undercounting by at least twofold.
0: <laughs> at least that's that's very generous, Mel. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's exceptionally generous. Vera, what's up? Come on in. Thank you. Thanks, Mel and Crystal, for hosting. Um, I just wanted to talk about two things. I wanted to raise sort of the question around do we think that the general population has a sense? That hospitals are in such dire straits right now. Why not? Um, And I also think we, I know we're talking to uh, mostly a group of listeners that's been following um, the COVID 19 struggles that we've been having, but maybe we could talk about the different factors that Mm -hmm. are contributing to the overwhelm of our hospitals, both historic, you know, our. Uh, the pay issues, the um, workplace challenges that they've been facing for a long time with the under-resourcing of our public health care facilities, resulting in things like our nurses and doctors protesting recently, um, the illicit drug poisonings you were talking about. And of course, like COVID-19 and the fact that we are um, basically encouraging a population of people who are largely ignorant about risk and transmission that includes the public and our healthcare professionals that have been misinformed and underinformed by their superiors and the BCCDC. CDC. And we're encouraging all of these people to gather unmasked. We've seen conferences, medical conferences, all kinds of things. Um, and then, of course, there's like the issue of nosocomial spread that in in healthcare mm. facilities spread. Mm. So maybe we could talk about some of that. Oh, so much
0: so much there um yeah okay reasons let's talk let's talk reasons and and we'll we'll touch on a bunch of them right now but you can sort of listen back on the podcast if you want to hear it more extensively because we've talked it, about it at, at length in sort of various episodes um yeah so coming into the pandemic we were already under resourced in the bc uh health system uh because we decided to like do a pay per service with our doctors um, and they have been making next to no money after they have to pay for all of their expenses Um, so there have been protests recently as Vera noted Um, I would say to look those things up a little bit more I don't have the total details on those so I don't want to speak over those populations and what they've been saying or sort of misrepresent it but we've we've sort of had understaffing issues for quite a while um, and especially in the already rural areas in Northern Health, we were already quite understaffed with nurses and doctors specifically um, for a long time. Um, I think probably a decade or more, um, longer than that, we've sort of had extra financial options for people that are willing to move out to those rural areas, et cetera, <clears throat> because it's a long term issue. Um, other issues going on, oh my gosh trying to just think of everything. Mel.
1: The BC CDC has is like its own rogue mm-hmm. organization.
0: Oh, public Health in BC, that's its own topic, right? Let me start with that one. So, Public Health in BC has definitely had its own challenges, and although I thought it was specific to COVID, I'm just going to say that it's not specific to COVID, um, especially in the Vancouver Coastal Health region area. <laughs> Um, So we've seen the public health system during this pandemic sort of go from uh, what they approached and stated would be a transparent effort uh, towards it to uh, very much restricting data Um, across the two years. Public health has made a point to sort of. Um, underhandedly talk about those who have anything to say against them, um, including sort of doctors and, and other people that even though they're helpful in this field, uh, they don't want to hear from it. So this includes, for example, uh, when reports about the excess deaths have come out and have been made, uh, statements have been made to our public health. Um, I think Henry, her specific response was that she took that with a grain of salt um, and that was before that was published in the journal. But that data is published now and sort of has some weight behind it. Um, but she still has yet to address it. So we have a public health that has actively been um, obfuscating the data, I would say. Um, and then when they become aware that we're aware they're obfuscating it, they just take it away. Um, they actively gaslight our population uh, to just an unexplainable degree, Um anybody now in BC. So if we move more from public health to the culture of BC, um, as Henry has said it, um, Henry stated in the beginning that masks weren't part of our culture, which a lot of us uh, took offense to in British Columbia, Uh, wondering what that meant. Um, And there has been this uh, sort of movement in bc in several areas that has grown with that anti sort of vax anti-movement and unfortunately for us in bc uh, many things that our public health officer has stated has have been picked up by the sort of um, crowd of individuals who who don't support public health measures Um, so we've been in this weird position of um, them being supportive and people not recognizing because we have an ndp government that these are not necessarily helpful policies for us and and people. Unfortunately, um, Vera, sort of uh, this is part of it. As you ask about what the population knows, is uh, many people when they listen to the podcast and when I talk to them about it, know that I don't focus generally on individuals and individual um, sort of mistakes or choices about this because, um, yes, people sometimes are choosing to be dicks to one another, but our public health has played such a significant role in misinforming our population and in, in ensuring in many ways that they don't have the information that they need to make proper decisions, that it's hard for me um, as a person who sort of understands psychology and understands learning, uh, that I fault those people because our public health has played such a significant role in this. So you know part of the things that i have done and and wanted to be part of including this sort of bc hospital data is trying to inform the population more, is trying to get that information to the population more that will help in their understanding. Um, Because following up to what you asked, Vera, I don't think that the general population understands what's happening in our hospitals. I don't think that they understand how bad rural is hit right now, because most people are not having to access these services. They're in a, um, you know, uh, medically privileged position, so they don't have to be accessing these various services and are not thinking about it on a daily basis versus those uh, people who are having to access services or, or supporting people who are having to access services. So we're living in very, very different realities. So if we find ways to um, modify how they're seeing that reality so it shapes to more of ours, that will be helpful. And part of that is data, which is why they're taking away the data right? People can't make that link when there's less data there. And that's part of where we come in and keep throwing it back at them. Like, no, it's, we're going to keep picturing it, whatever way you keep putting smog on the mirror, we're going to keep wiping it and still trying to get that information out, which is what this and every attempt sort of has been throughout the pandemic. That was a stream of consciousness. Sorry. (laughs)
2: Vera, what else were you wondering? I got lost in my own head there. No, that's great. I just i know that um when it comes to what the unions were focused on, I was tracking the b c nurses um messaging a little bit, and they're mm-hmm. focused on um requesting it was a little bit vague to be honest, but from what I read, um, additional resources they're struggling with abuse at in the workplace mm. um, and also they are. Looking for a retention plan, I guess. <laughs> what we what we don't hear from these unions, what we don't hear from the doctors and the nurses unions, is requests for um, airborne informed policy in their workplaces. That's one thing that we don't hear. Again, because um, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of these workers aren't aware that COVID is airborne, and um, risk has been downplayed to them as well. Right. So that's one thing that we don't hear. We don't hear we hear individuals uh, calling for those things. We hear a lot of um, brave health care workers that have informed themselves with resources beyond British Columbia. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, But we don't hear the unions speaking up for those things when we know that, um, you know, making sure that every health care worker is outfitted with a fit tested respirator, uh, making sure that we clean the air with ashray standards um, as recommended by engineers where we ventilate, filter with HEPA cleaners, and monitor CO2 as they recommend. Uh, we know that would help. We also aren't testing patients when they come in unless nope. unless they may qualify for treatment. Oh, so- no, no.
0: But Vera, <laughs> I saw a doctor very Explicitly talking about this on
2: Twitter, cheering on how they're not testing people anymore. That's right, and we know that we know that they should really be leveraging testing for everyone coming through, whether that's a patient or a visitor. That we have rapid tests we could leverage for that. We also know that um, you know there's they can run PCR tests in the hospital, but. You know, so there's the asymptomatic tr- transmission piece. There's the fact that symptomatic people who are admitted to hospitals still, still aren't being tested with COVID. They're being housed in the same rooms. Like, yep. It's um, and then and then they keep talking about how staff are ill, and so we have to cl- close everything. Of course. Oh really? Um, we could also be providing uh, clean respirators for. Um, visitors and patients coming in having them in different sizes available Uh, we still have the issue in British Columbia where many patients um, and visitors are still asked to remove their high efficacy Mm -hmm. masks for a gaping blue surgical mask (laughs) And I do want to remind everyone that in Alberta, that policy changed six months ago. So even in Alberta, yes. when you go to the hospital, you are permitted to maintain your high efficacy mask. They will not make you change it. And the the application of I this rule in is still inconsistent across healthcare facilities in BC.
0: Yes. And I would say, you know, I'm in AHS systems now. This is why I'm continuing to battle BC from Alberta's because I can do that very nicely now um, and not have to be uh, penalized by them while in BC. Um, Yeah. I was going to say a concern I have while you're actually talking about that, Vera, is I've been watching the news about the Public Health Agency of Canada and the rapid testing. And from what I'm seeing, they're ending their rapid testing program to the provinces at the end of this year. If the federal doesn't provide us with rapid tests, who thinks that BC is going to continue providing us rapid tests?
1: The answer is we're not going to get any because we're barely even getting the federal rapid tests. Right, yeah,
2: they- people are looking for them in, in pharmacies and they can't find them. Well, and let's be clear that some people are looking for them. First, British Columbia did an excellent job of trying to convince the public <laughs> They were useless before they made them available with a lot of red tape, uh, which frustrated a lot of people who stopped bothering to try. And now we have access to rapid tests where you can go into a pharmacy um, if you can get there. So there's still barriers to accessing the test in the first place. But if you can get Mm -hmm. into a pharmacy, you can request usually one or two boxes now if they have them. But yeah, I was reading about that as well. And while I was reading about that, it came to my attention that many states in the U.S. offer self-administered PCR and mm-hmm. self-administered rapid tests at their mm-hmm. COVID care facilities. And we don't have those here publicly at all. But what we do have is we've had them privately available and accessible for travelers at a cost or pay with your Aeroplan miles or whatever the deal is for a long time like gosh a year last I I can't remember exactly how long but I know that travelers have been leveraging self-administered PCR tests so we have that technology why is there no one talking about that in Canada well I have
0: two thoughts the first is that they're very clearly trying to move past the pandemic in a if I shut my eyes and don't count the tests it'll go away toddler sort of way, which is clearly not going well. The second is that we did such a piss poor job of establishing the infrastructure needed to increase our testing, which we knew we were going to need from the beginning that they have just completely lost the ability to do it because they burnt out so many people with their cross-pollination of jobs that they were moving people around with texts and etc. Um again we're seeing the staffing crisis across the labs as well which we knew was going to happen and that was why part of the reason that a lot of us told them that developing that infrastructure with long-term jobs built into it for some sort of testing structure for pandemics would be great No, they burnt out the system um so now the problem and the concern I see and what we're going to have, which is is outside of COVID and why I'm sort of starting this hospital tracking, because this is this is not a COVID problem anymore. The The damage that has occurred is across the spectrum and it's going to impact us across all systems now. Um, and all intentionally ignored communities are going to be impacted by these hospital changes and those sorts of things um, and the resource changes that are going to come um, in consequent consequences related to that so it's it's a mess it's just snowballing at this
1: point i mean like no one in bc can get a fourth booster right now unless you're like 90 or over well
0: and we don't have the, the people now we don't have the capacity it. no
1: they, they're they closing down actual vaccination centers like the, the drive through one on coquitlam is shut down now so You know, there's kids out there that haven't gotten their second shot and they're behind. Okay. Um, You're making it less accessible. Like people have to go really far sometimes to get to a vaccination site now because they're shutting more and more of them down. They're obviously not anticipating anyone wanting a fourth booster if they're shutting down these vaccination centers. So what's going to happen? I mean, a lot of people are past their six months, past their third booster now. Well, what What then? Are then, they
0: supposed to go down to the States to get it? Like, I don't understand. We know that you and I do all this because we tend to think long term. It's a tragedy in our own heads that we wish we could avoid at times, but we do it nonetheless. And the impact of this I just don't see how we get out of this hole, which is the really scary part in the hospitals right now is like the fact that they're not actually orienting to being truthful about what's going on and sort of getting on, like why aren't they establishing the system as the system collapses? That is something they should be doing because it's not going to get better for the next little bit. Like we need to be tracking this sort of stuff, but not only that, They're sitting out there saying they're building new hospitals. Who
2: the fuck's going to staff that hospital? I wouldn't encourage anyone considering moving to British Columbia to do so. Not for work, not for anything. Who's going to be able to afford to anyway? No. And no, this isn't a good place to come if you're in healthcare, if you're a teacher. I mean, we're burning out all of our workforces and making them all sick.
0: Well, and... The general population, this is where I struggle, is like, what is the awareness there of sort of what's going on? And I know that Horgan has made a number of missteps publicly that have sort of brought um, backlash to him. <laughs> Maybe in part because I influenced some of that backlash uh, and some missing posters. But the the unwillingness for them to sort of deal with any of this is, is making it... I can't fathom how much worse this is going to get because they're doing that. And because we don't have, you know, readily accessible information to what is the staffing like in the hospitals? You know, how many beds are active? Can we actually staff all the beds? Those sorts of things should be readily available to um Our general population who have to access emergency services. Someone who is going to a hospital for chemotherapy treatment and is immunocompromised should be able to look up if that is a safe hospital for them to go to. And we have nothing. There's no information. You don't know if you're walking into a hospital that's going to tell you to take off your mask when you get there, or be put into a quad room with three other people without any sort of airborne precautions, because you're right, Vera, none of the unions are fighting for airborne measures. None of the unions are fighting for ventilation upgrades, with the exception of a few, let's not say all of them are, and there are individuals that are strongly advocating within some of those groups. But um, this is what we have to accept as the people who are trying to fix and work with the situation is that the ignorance about these issues is across spectrums of people. This is not a a certain group issue, or a low SES issue, or a um, people of certain education issue. No, there are people with PhDs that are up there, spouting their bullshit, that are influencing this as well, that are walking down this line. It's across every spectrum of every sort of professionality as well, which is terrifying. It shows us what we are up against when the next pandemic comes. Or when something really serious and and significant societally happens. This is what we're up against. I'd love to hear a response to that. I went big.
1: I don't think people are going to get the message, Crystal, until something really consequential. Like like super disastrous. Like where they cannot ignore the body count. Where they can't hide the data. Where they can't... We're
0: talking like was it shanghai yeah the bodies in the hospital
1: yeah it was hong kong that was hong kong when b b b a 2.2 hit them Mm. and then there are like actually body bags placed in the rooms with the live patients and then that made i mean it would have to be something that glaring you know i mean right now i mean the morgue in the nine is like at 120 percent, apparently
0: yeah real reporter's been putting some information up if anybody's interested in that account on twitter um, yeah salim jiwa has has always been like right on top of it but my goodness like
1: the morgue is that bust and full you know and and that information isn't Mm -hmm. readily available unless you're following certain people on twitter right
0: well and vera and i talked about this earlier in terms of that the efforts right now are quite scattered right is that we're collecting data sort of all over the place we're all trying to survive we're all burnt out so we're sort of collecting it mishmash which is you know this weekend i sort of had one of those moments where i'm like okay fuck it i gotta sort of put the time in and aggregate a bunch of stuff which i did um but it's it's exhausting and it's time consuming um, and we have to do it, which is why we're all here talking. Um, but yeah, that's, that's part I mean, of the
1: warfare, though, isn't it? Sorry, that's part of the warfare, though, isn't it? They make it purposely difficult to get. They make it. They ha- they are on a united front in in squashing dissent, in painting a you know rosy picture, in hiring. You know, mouthpieces for the for the NDP to purposely shout down any dissenters mm-hmm. right like me and you we don't exist to them right they would never ever talk about Project Canary because they wouldn't want any other BC citizen to be aware that we exist and what we've been talking about well I did get
0: the one the only time we got a the big backlash was when we brought Sonia on because we actually got a response to that one which was interesting Um, yes let's talk about that because uh, like elizabeth may even shared our
1: podcast
0: yeah which was
2: cool.
1: yeah um thank you and
0: sonia has been a consistent force um again i'm partyless uh so do what you will with the fact that she's leader of the green parties um she and i have sort of become friends over the pandemic and we have talks about uh, the sort of state of the world. And from those talks, this is what I'm speaking of, not in any sort of capacity as a political leader. So I want to preface it with that um, in that she's the only person that's in there calling for reasonable <laughs> science-based policies. Yes. And the, I mean, she the way they react this to her is as if sw- she's insane. Oh,
1: yeah. I know Mike Farnsworth like was caught on a hot mic saying "fuck off," after question period. Do you see that? It was right. it was so like the way she what she asked was so reasonable for any democracy, <laughs> uh, you know. And and they said they they treated her like "how dare you, you heretic" for questioning right. us. It was insane
0: when you ask. The parties in power, or or people running your healthcare, basic information, and they uh, become defensive and attack you. We have a problem, right? We have a problem, and we've had a problem for a long time. But more people are dying, and that's just simply it. That's the only way I can say it. Between excess deaths, between uh, the poison drug supply, between COVID. The government is assisting in much more death of our citizens, full stop, right? And I, my mom moves back to BC at the end of August. She's going to be living there with my grandpa. And I literally am sitting here thinking, uh, as someone who's turning 60 in September, is she going to be prioritized in any way if she has some sort of health problem? Is she going to be able to get services if she has a health problem, right? Right. It's so terrifying to even think like that, right?
1: But we have to. Because that's the reality.
0: Well, the reality is is that people who are doing stage 4 chemo are making posts that their chemo has been cancelled because the staffing resources in the hospital are too low. Yeah, I saw that. Right? Stage 4 chemo. You can't get much more far along than that.
2: Yeah, and Mel, you were talking about you know, it would take, like, what would it take to wake up the public? And it would take something really ugly, something that they couldn't hide. And it's distressing that we know that there's already been so, so much excess death, and that's already been. It's just, I'm not sure what it would take, or that they're not going to be able to meet it with, um, you know, equal data obfuscation hmm. when something goes <laughs> awry because basically welcome I feel to like, monkeypox. I feel like they've tested the public um through the pandemic as far as um whether or not they could convince us that these issues are benign, not such an issue at all. Um and I think mostly the public has been lulled into complacency with the messaging. I think the messaging and the lack of information, the lack of data has been very effective. Um, And we know that people are either, it seems we're either too busy surviving to pay attention or stay on top of the information and the news and where our tax dollars are going, et cetera, or we're too privileged to care and until you're sick and then you're trying to access care. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's by design. I, I have wondered if, you know, when we started talking about monkeypox circulating, I thought, while well, given that monkeypox, um, you know, the CDCs are already talking about the likelihood of airborne transmission of monkeypox, uh-huh. um, would that be ugly enough to scare people into establishing, like demanding airborne protections? And the thing is, is now we're seeing that um, the way that it's showing up is not always so consistent with those massive pustules. Sometimes it looks a lot more, they would like to say mild. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mild, mild um, yeah.
2: smallpox. <laughs> exactly. So, so I'm not sure that that would be enough. But I also want to share, and if there's enough time, I'm not sure what time you want to wrap up, Crystal. But um, there may be some people in the room that maybe want to share some of their healthcare stories. But I will share that my nana recently had a fall. Uh, She's been struggling to access adequate home care here in Interior Health for some time. And she had a fall recently where she needed an ambulance to take her to the hospital. Um, When she arrived, they put her... um, They didn't give her a mask, actually, (laughs) upon arrival when she came through emergency. Um, And she, she waited nine hours in emergency... Um, and every nurse was not her nurse. Uh, so nobody could bring her a drink of water or talk to her about eating as she's 83 years old. And so when my Nana needs emergency care in the hospital, um, no one's protecting her from airborne transmission there and she's not getting the care that she needs. And that's just one example. She jokes about, uh, like last year, also, you know, still during the pandemic, she needed care at Cottonwood's um, uh, long-term care facility and she stayed there for a few weeks and she came out telling me that inferior inferior health is the joke that gets g- giggles around there from the residents, that um, they all know their care is poor and we all know that they all deserve better. We have some listeners from across the country like John, who is an outspoken advocate for long-term care. Uh, safety in long-term care, airborne protections in long-term care. And it's personal for him too. And we know there's a lot of people in the room, including you, Crystal, uh, with your grandma who's been in long-term care. So just, we all have these stories. I think others in here may have stories. I just want to remind everyone in the room that this is being recorded. Of course, um, Crystal and Mel have their podcast, Project Canary, this will be airing on there. This may be accessible to other people as well. So whatever you share is public. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank
0: you, um, for sharing that Vera. And yeah, the, the waiting times, I mean, they're bad now and they were bad. They have been bad for, for a long time, not to understate what's going on now. Um, for instance, I recall, um, last year, uh, someone dying while waiting in the waiting room of one of our emergency departments um, in the summer. And, and of course, we had the, the deaths with the, with the heat dome, which a large portion of those individuals were seniors who did not have access to air conditioning, um, which John Horgan stated is uh, essential for all, despite the fact that it's not available in long-term care, including in the long-term cares in Kelowna, And during last summer, during that heat wave, um, families who tried to contact them, and again, a lot of them were shut down during this time, so people could not get in to see them, were told, you know, as long as it's under 40 degrees on the thermometer, they weren't going to do anything about it. Um, And, you know, these are documented instances of these things happening in our long-term care. Um, And as you brought up, Vera, my grandma, uh, so my grandma died in wave two within British Columbia. Uh, She was in one of the long-term care homes in all over British Columbia, and one-third of her home died alongside her. She was the first case to die. Um, And then uh, I believe 16 others followed her in the following two weeks. They have not improved their protocols. They have not changed any of their ventilation. They are still housed in the same sort of rooms. They have not changed anything, despite the fact that Um, that long-term care report came out, right? Um, So I think about this question too, Vera, of like, what will it take? (laughs) Because it feels like so much has happened and that how can people not care after everything that has happened? And as much as me wanting to angrily shove everything in everyone's face feels like the best solution, um, all of my training and all of my research would indicate that, you know, informing the population with good information with accessible information um to understand the situation better is usually the best option as well as humanizing these narratives um providing faces providing um information that makes it less um othered to them because a lot of it is built into the divisiveness now Um, and bc has done an, an fucking excellent job of its divisiveness including back to the core one of March 2020 BC um, and Henry stating that masks aren't part of our culture right um, so this is these are long-standing patterns that we've seen that they've implemented and, and they're going to be impacting us for some time to come which is part of why um, even outside of COVID as Vera's mentioned like we we do have to work on informing the general population and and figuring out how to do that because Even if we don't do it for COVID, we have to do it for the next pandemic or the next airborne thing, because this is not the end. And with climate change and, you know, climate refugees and the movement of people that are going to be coming and everything that's changing in our world, not dealing with it is not going to set us up for the future. It's just going to do us great harm, as we've seen and continue to see in BC.
2: Yeah. The focus on airborne, like the quality of our air has never been more important to me. And, you know, I'm in the Okanagan. And as we're looking at the summer coming up, like I'm trying to manage the risk of COVID in my own household. We're talking about um, in-hospital transmission as well. We know that wildfire smoke is expected. We know the fires are expected. Um, I really would like to see the governments subsidize... Um HEPA air cleaners for businesses and, and personal use, multi-unit buildings, as well as um, air conditioners, like you were talking about the heat dome. We should just expect that these things are going to happen on repeat. We should expect more climate disasters. We should be- I do. Why don't they? Yeah, exactly. I and it that's the thing is it's very stressful as we come into the season where we expect these stacked emergencies. We're gonna have floods, we're gonna have fires, people won't be able to get ambulances last well, year Well, and
0: thinking like thinking about where we are at with the hospitals now, if all those things happen, right? Like we were pressed last year, and what people don't realize is this is a cumulative effect on our hospitals and staffing, right? It's not like The little bit of people sick now is the problem. The problems occurring is that we've had people that um, were frustrated and sick across the last two years. And each wave of people that have seen them not take account for this, that have watched public health not care about them, we've lost more and more workers. Right. So we are operating with like the lowest number of workers with the lowest morale because we can't retain them um, that are burnt out. and. The research will say to no fault of those workers that the care will not be as good, right? It just cannot be as good. That's not their fault. They're That's doing... built
2: in. Yeah, they're doing the jobs of three or four other staff members. There's no way. You know, my mom worked in um, private care for um uh, people with disabilities. For when I was younger, and for as long as I've known, there's been issues with having adequate numbers of staff members in our private and public healthcare facilities. And it's um it's outrageous. Like, of course, they're not going to be able to give us the compassion, the time, the attention that we need. Right? It's we're all going to suffer, and I just don't see how it gets better here. I hear the opposition harping on it in question period. Um, They don't, in my opinion, I don't think they're asking good enough questions. (laughs) When Mm -hmm. will the government, when will this government act? (laughs) When will they act? Um, You know, and they're not asking for the things that would stop the bleeding, right? They're not, they're not asking for the things that are contributing to the people leaving now. Um, Just asking, minister dicks for a plan and letting him prattle off whatever nonsense he's going to sell that day is not a solution
0: mm-hmm. absolutely
2: you know and i've been listening to question period a lot more lately and it's it's embarrassing i have to say i wonder how much we pay for question period altogether. um i don't want to hear <laughs> anymore i it's it's so it's such a waste of time and it's so frustrating that yeah it's just so frustrating that our our resources are so poorly managed, and I, I don't see that this government is going to improve it. What I do see is this government, um, facilitating the continued transition to privatized healthcare <laughs> in British Columbia. With oh, tel- let's talk about Telus Health. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's go no ahead. The fucking
0: Telus Health. Let's talk about the fact that Mr. Matthew Chow who led our doctors of bc throughout uh you know 2020 to 2021 that dang year of the pandemic and worked throughout you know uh, doctors of bc well look at that as of february 22 who was he the executive director of hmm. mental health intel is health what a wow. fucking joke wow Tell us made the most company throughout the first couple of years of the pandemic and continues to and for some reason they're now our health directors what? Tell me we're not headed straight towards privatization with that
1: well yeah I mean if you don't have a family doctor you're not going to be able to even get like a breast checkup from a mammogram because they have nowhere to send your records to Right. So you're forced to pay for for TELUS health or whatever. Mm -hmm. Their exorbitant fee is four thousand dollars a year and then plus whatever. But then so so then they call it like what it's like considered like a concierge service because then they have specialists attached. Right. But but let's
0: talk about what they're touching in. they're doing medical appointments, they're doing prescriptions, prescriptions, they're doing
1: psychological health. Yeah, so it's kind of like what they used to do in the U.S. where you have to be in, in network. Like like if you've been following, I don't know if you follow like a U.S. medical Twitter, but like basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to like privatize your system and make it go like the U.S. system. And so if you happen to be, like you get ill and the doctor that you need to see is not in your network, you're kind of SOL. And and this is this is sort of the formation, like the basics of form forming the, the beginnings of something like that, where they're you're forcing people to go in network and privatize and then and and then it becomes it just destroys the entire medical system. And well we people- have our
0: our friend in our group, Mel, that, that used the teleshealth members, so she Uh, has terrible health issues and is is not getting the services she needs right now um, and is not doing well. Uh, She, you know, couldn't get appointments to get prescriptions, so she ended up trying to get it through Telus Health and then, lo and behold, doesn't show up when it's supposed to be delivered and it takes weeks trying to talk to their people to get the prescriptions, right? Like, and that is what it's going to be. Yeah.
1: That's how they break our public health system. Right, because right. then they start networking it, and then they start doing two tier care.
0: Now we've got right. teleshealth virtual appointments, right? And if you want to speed it up, you can pay a nine ninety nine dollar fee. Like it's-, Grif- it's so grifty.
1: I hate it. It's so grifty, and and they are only pushing this product on us because they're actually purposely breaking our system. That's right. By by underfunding it, by overloading it by letting covid rep as a policy without educating the populace on how to keep themselves safe and the actual dangers of them like like did you know like i'm like reading about sudden adult death syndrome now like i don't (laughs) like sudden adult death syndrome you can suddenly die as an adult well maybe because you let sars freaking Covid rip, and people have been partying and and yoloing it up for the last four months, and now th- now there's all this concern about sudden adult death syndrome. Mel, it's melts. all <laughs>
0: the mysterious deaths that it's they so can't mysterious. account
1: for. <laughs> Just fuck right off, everyone. Like it's so mysterious.
0: Mary, uh, I saw you go unmute there. What were you gonna say?
2: Oh, yeah, I was just going to say they just, and then when they come in to save the day, they call it philanthropy, <laughs> as if it wasn't the big plan all along, right?
0: Right. Like, why, like, why can't, instead of tell us making money from our healthcare system, donate all that money it made from our healthcare system?
2: Well, they donate it to the foundations and then mm. and, and the private organizations network at these unmasked gatherings and you know, support each other's career and ambition. And and then Henry gets two e-bikes. Those
1: those foundations, right?
0: So let's (laughs) talk about the ethics of that because there's a lot of people talking about it and I want to address it just so it gets uh, dealt with and then we don't have to talk about it again. Um, So there's a lot of people that are expressing upset about her taking the e-bike. I think it's reasonable to be upset about that. The woman has made a lot of money off of us during this pandemic, including her book writing and her various uh, things she's been doing and enjoying throughout the pandemic. So I myself was not that happy. Um, If I was in her position, I would have uh, probably not entered the draw to begin with and would have just donated to them. Um, But second, if I had won the donation, I would have then uh, took it in name only and sent it off to the next person that they can send it to or donated it to someone or some sort of organization that would get it to somebody in need right like uh the woman is coming off the back of a three hundred thousand dollar salary while our fucking families were dying and then she's joyfully (laughs) riding around on the e-bike it doesn't have to be a real conflict of interest it just has to be perceived and man is that a perceived conflict of interest to me Anyone else think
2: it's a conflict of interest? Am I too too harsh here on Dr. Henry? Well, any anytime that I've been part of a fundraising initiative um, within a company or something, even if the C-level executives enter a draw or a raffle, if they win, they would donate it back. Um, there's, you know, I think I agree that she could have had a plan for, um, even in time for the announcement, if they wanted to use that for PR, that she would... You know, say that she was donating it to someone else, like Um, a nurse in need or something. How awesome would that have been, right? Like the issue is, it isn't (laughs) these bikes, and it isn't just the shoes. It's the issue is that our policies are not designed to take care of the public, and so it's difficult to process after watching her undeserved accolades tour uh, for the last. couple of months, um, where she's going and picking up awards and uh, different sorts of, you know, recognitions that while our public is suffering, and then to see that there's all these unmasked um, medical conferences or events with foundations, and then just to see the photo of the foundation showing that Henry won these bikes. It's just... It all adds up and I agree. It's the, it's the optics of it. I don't I don't think it was well handled. I can see why the organization would have been eager to take advantage of that um PR opportunity. Um you know, we don't have issues with bikes. I was I was surprised to see her wearing a helmet. I wonder if she also wears a seatbelt. Um <laughs> You know, that's a choice. Not a mask, Vera, (laughs) but not a mask because that photo is taken. Personal
0: choice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it was something that could have been easily rectified with some uh, capable comms people, but we seem to be having a dearth of those in BC. (laughs) So uh, nobody appears to be able to handle their comms in BC. Uh, So that's a problem.
2: I mean, a lot of these events have have had her as a key speaker at their events um, where she addresses the crowd and maybe they thought this was the next best thing. Maybe this was really just a, a random draw and she won. Either way, it didn't land well.
0: Oh, um, I think I totally think it was random that she won. I think she sure dealt sure. with it so poorly um, mm-hmm. and that that was the problem is that in the context of the population that has already expressed some concern about the optics of what she does, that she didn't think in that way to consider outside of herself. But given her past decision-making, I'm not surprised. So uh, I just laughed at it and was like, well, there, there goes Henry. (laughs) Enjoying her bike.
1: It's so tone deaf, right? The disconnect, but it's so, clearly obvious that she's tone deaf and disconnected from reality. Um, it's unfortunate. We're stuck with her.
0: But it's, <laughs> it's not Henry. Talks. And I, and I think it's not just Henry, I should say. No, it's, and I it's wanna like be clear. the people that, all
1: around her.
0: Is that Vera is mentioning that, uh, that conference, the medical conference, right. With, with the doctors, a lot of physicians in British Columbia <laughs> that are in a crowded room <laughs> well, okay, let's say like 90% of them are in a crowded room with no masks sitting at tables. And then you see clearly the few people who are trying to be sensical wearing uh, like N95 masks at the back of the room waiting by the doors. Um, But when you consider the fact that these are the same doctors that are cutting their services, that are saying to the population that they can't control the sickness and the staffing issues, that won't make mandates for masks within their facilities... Pretty damn frustrating to see them sitting in a big crowded room without masks. And those are the people we expect to have the knowledge to be able to navigate this situation. And if they're not doing that, <laughs> we are neck deep and that's why we are where we are. That's why I'm sitting here on the weekend making a hospital closure is because every level of protection... Um, and every level that's supposed to ensure equity for our most ignored communities has failed within British Columbia, full stop. So what I'm going to do is I will be looking for information from anybody. If you have information about any closures or service disruptions for hospitals or urgent care centers in British Columbia to submit that via the form, um, that is available there with the data website, uh, again it's super easily accessible now if you just want to send people to bchospitaldata.com it'll redirect them to the database so you don't have to remember that full ugly name Um, i will be updating with relevant information as it comes in and i'm going to try and build out the information that we have but um, this is sort of the starting point and we go from here Um, and then you'll see expanded information on that uh illicit drug deaths coming up in the coming week or so as I speak with Karen and get that updated. But we are going to hopefully find ways to start communicating this information um, and hopefully have a database of resources as well as we come to that. I'm going to be back here next week at the same time having a conversation about what's going on. Um, if there's been any relevant updates, and update with the um, sort of uh, data that we do get. get, I'll start doing weekly updates then. And I'm just going to be working to bridge some connections across BC because we, uh, despite the fact that they have told us for the third summer in a row that we are in for a fun pandemic free summer, I suspect that will not be the case. And with the hospitals where they are, and with likely some of the climate disasters we know are coming in the summer, um, we're all going to have to work hard together to try and uh save as many lives as we can with the information we have because we know that public health will not be doing it um so i hope to see everybody here next week to sort of talk about uh where the situation is at and then hopefully now that the website is up i can come with maybe some more action items next week for people to help on now that the system's up and going if you're so interested in doing so mel anything from you Um, Just thank you,
1: everyone, for being here. And thank you, Crystal, for working tirelessly, um, for keeping us informed. And thank you so much.
2: (laughs) Vera. (laughs) anything from (laughs) you? (laughs) Yeah, just uh, so much gratitude. Thank you to you both. I've so enjoyed and appreciated Project Canary. I do want to mention that Crystal and Mel's podcast can be found at Project Canary. Canary.org. Um, so if you haven't checked that out, definitely do check that out. Their podcast is available on the website and any platform that you use to listen to your podcasts. And um, I will also be starting to organize some Twitter spaces for fellow advocates for evidence-based pandemic policy. Um, I'm hoping to establish some regular spaces by the end of june hopefully like a weekly space as well and i'm particularly interested in uniting efforts across the country um, like pan-jurisdictional unity in advocacy because we have so many great allies and advocates across the country and we're all fighting the same fight under um, the public health agency of canada you know we're all having the same conversations about our hospitals, about our schools, about our homes, and our families struggling. So um, I'm looking forward to that. And anyone's welcome to get in touch with me about that. And yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Vera, for joining us tonight. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. My social anxiety is roaring, and I can't wait to press end now. So have a wonderful (laughs) evening. Good night.